everyone. Welcome to another installment of Countercurrents Radio Live. I am your guest host, Pox Populag. And joining me tonight, we've got some special guests as well. The Ayatollah is here and Gerard Murphy. Hello, gentlemen. Evening. How are you doing? Hey, what's the crack? Right, so uh, we're going to be discussing the year that was, and then later we'll uh, invite some other special guests on who'll be joining us in the second hour. And I figured rather than gabbing about some of the main events that everyone has already talked to death, like Gaza and uh, Elon Musk on Twitter and things like that, I thought we'd talk about some of our favorite moments of the year and perhaps even some events that slipped under the radar, but we thought were of importance. So, Gerard, I'll start with you because it's been quite a year over in Ireland, and you've been very involved in the events taking place there. Why don't you tell us about your thoughts on what has happened in Ireland over the course of 2023? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, part of me sometimes wonders if, uh, uh, you know, I talk about it too much, but in a sense, maybe, you know, <clears throat> that's just from my perspective. Um, I suppose I'm always talking about it, um, but obviously not all your listeners necessarily are. But uh, yeah, what's been happening in Ireland has been crazy. The It's the asylum centre thing um, has been festering for years and it kind of blew up this year. And uh, there have been riots, there have been uh, alleged arson attacks on premises that were for these uh, migrant centres. It's basically just reached a boiling point in Ireland, um, a little bit in Ireland, uh, sorry, England as well, like Liverpool, you saw some sort of protests happening. Um, I think in the Irish model as well, like um, I can't necessarily take credit for it or anything. It's just something that happens to be in the country I live in, really which is um, sort of popular opposition, like street protesting, road blockades against these places. And um, in the recently there were riots in Dublin. That was probably worldwide news in a way. Um, it's a kind of, a, it is very much Irish in its character. You know, it's this kind of, um, uh, you know, very animated, uh, unapologetic, real presence you know um i saw recently some people in america some right-wing sort of nationalist activists talking about someone i actually like to pay attention to myself but he was um he referred to like we need to do more of what they're doing in ireland and it struck me that like you know that's a good idea and all if you Mm -hmm. want to do that but without knowing america in detail i've only been there kind of once fleetingly um it's sort of like from an activist point of view, it's like, well, what are you going to, how are you going to just like conjure that up? You know, cause I know I live here, I'm involved in all this stuff and I know I didn't conjure it up. I had a little role, but you can't just make hundreds of people in a local community react. You know, you can be there to cover it. You can, you can fight disinformation from the other side. You can sort of be like a, a protector of it from the media and, and all of that almost like a day walker, you know, kind of like Blade, sort of on their level fighting them. Um, but uh, it's not something you could just conjure up. And it is very much in truly in the spirit of nationalism that not only is it a pushback, but it's a pushback that is coming from the grassroots. And uh, yeah, it has reached a boiling point. Um, 
the climate here is very strange this year since COVID, Ukraine, all of that, like the migration thing, everything is just very strange. There's a very surreal atmosphere in Ireland. And uh, I think there's a lot of pressure on people. A lot of people are in sort of a form of quiet poverty. Um, if they're not mm. directly poor, they're in a lot of debt poverty, probably. Um, a lot of people are dislocated. They have to live in communities like an hour from where they grew up and, and where they everywhere they know because just to get to work and to be able to afford a house and all of that. So the, the temperature in Ireland is very, uh, very turned up. And I think it is under mis what's the word underrated in a sense or under i can't think of the word for this it's like under understood you know it's not understood enough and um, even people like us who talk about this are <laughs> thank you um it's underappreciated but it you know it's like the nature of it is it's almost like it could be if we had better institutions academic it would be studied from a non sort of ridiculously globalized or globalist perspective you could actually study this as a very interesting social phenomena if you brought in the economics it's this that and the other and it's you know it's obviously not quite done but um so i just find it fascinating to kind of live in ireland to be a victim of it a subject of it and yet also an observer of it and uh mm. what better time to be in that position position you know and it's an interesting word that you used uh observer because get of like he's a pretty solid independent journalist folks and um you know you've been sharing some of the work that you've done over the years on your twitter account you know, driving through snowstorms to document um, sort of town hall meetings. And um, I've also seen you exposing NGOs. I saw you post something about an NGO in Dublin uh, that's offering like a fast track to an Irish passport for, you know, random Bamalians, as we call them. <laughs> and uh, it was cash payments only, no refunds. Um so he does great work. Everyone should follow him on Twitter. He's also on Telegram. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's It has been uh, interesting to see other countries take inspiration from Ireland. I think the only way that it could, that something similar could occur in America would be at a very local level. Because Ireland is so small compared to America or America is so big compared to Ireland. Um, you know, what happens somewhere in... Texas is really difficult to make someone in Wisconsin really care about it, even, even though it's the same country. And so I think if you were to get a similar uh, sort of, like you said, grassroots reaction to the abuses that are going on, it would have to be at a very local level. And that's the strength that Ireland has going for it, is that it is, uh, you know, it's a big island. But the population of the native, native Irish is quite small, um, you know, relative to other, other countries. Uh, they're trying to increase that population with uh, foreigners, but the native population of Ireland is somewhere around four, five million. And, you know, the, the old stereotype is that everyone kind of knows each other. And so I think that is uh, something that's really helping the Irish. Um, Tala, what are your thoughts on the year? What was some... What were some events that you were uh, particularly entertained by or interested in that might have slipped under the radar? 
I'm, I'm going to be totally honest. I mean, my, my recollection, of this, this is going to disappoint, my recollection for, for these things is absolutely awful. I mean, I struggle to recall the things that didn't go under the radar, let alone the ones that did. <laughs> I mean, but listening to Garrow talk about um, Ireland, it's interesting hearing him sort of talk of people in America saying we need to do more of what they're doing in Ireland. He did mention briefly... Um, Back in February in Kirby on sort of, yeah, the kind of greater Liverpool area, so to speak, on Merseyside, there was uh, one particular protest against the housing of these fighting age foreign men. In, in that case, it was a hotel in Kirby called the Sweets Hotel. Um, a police van went up in flames that night in slightly suspicious circumstances because the van was about eight years old, which is unusual for a police vehicle. There were sort of conspiracy theories as to what may have happened there and whether that was... Um, kind of staged, managed in some way, or incited so that there would be kind of a you know a photo opportunity and whatever else. Because particularly because in the weeks that followed, there was a lot of uh, well, I mean that that will bring me on something else. That the Reverend James Costello, who uh, just over a month ago was sentenced to five years in prison, basically I think for sticks and stickers. Mm. Sorry, stickers disseminating you know and disseminating the literature from the creativity movement of which he was a part. Um, he was there that night. He's a native of Kirby, and because he was uh, <clears throat> involved with Patriotic Alternative, the, the, the things he was charged with predate Patriotic Alternative for the record. Not, it's neither here nor there, given how spurious anything that this regime is going to go after you for of that nature. Um, he was there that night, and he happened to be there completely incidentally. Um, but they tried to, you know, the, the left wing media and the, the regime media generally tried to accuse Patriotic Alternative of organising that. So, I, you know, you have to wonder about the circumstances in which they're able to get photographs and video of a police van on fire. Um, it seems like one of those things where maybe did they try and set up and set themselves up with a, a bit of propaganda, and then it was a bit of a thrown thrown of shit at the wall, and some of it might stick. One of those types of things. In the end, they didn't really get much mileage out of it. Maybe they'll try and use it at a later date if ever they're angling for prescribing something like PA but that that brings me on to the first thing that really comes to mind with where Britain is concerned for me this year um and you know there's not a great deal to be cheerful about quite the opposite because um what we have seen this year in Britain is uh several people off the top of my head well three I can think of well four in fact off the top of my head um given incredibly harsh prison prison sentences for you know the, the most ridiculous sort of spurious things if that's the word i'm looking for you had james allchurch i think got two and a half years in may for basically putting out a podcast and using non-compliant language on it uh james allchurch aka sven longshanks shortly thereafter uh chris kearney aka charlie big potatoes i think got some i, I forget what his sentence was now it may have been five years for basically reposting forwarding a telegram post which had got links to a thousand pdfs of books and the though the judge acknowledged that he couldn't possibly have read all of them and though most of them were incredibly tame some of them contained things that they they deemed you know well okay we can put him in jail for that <clears throat> i mean bear in mind here there is a I, I may even be getting his sentence confused with somebody else i've got in mind which is going back a couple of years there was a man sentenced to five years for ownership of books you can buy on amazon i think the anarchist cookbook was one of them basically yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah that they basically because I forget, I've, I've got to be honest, I forget his name. He's not somebody I knew, but he was just a kid, wasn't he? Of. Sorry, he was just a kid. Like he no, was he barely... was actually in his fifties. That that guy. Um, ah, okay, but okay. He he yeah. Basically, they said, well, okay, you can. We we, we realize you can just buy those books on Amazon. It's perfectly legal to own them. But because we don't like your political views, we deem you a terror threat. Five years for you. Um, uh, I'm actually looking now, um, but. Um, 
Nicholas Brock, his name was, and he got five years for three books at the end. I think one of them was the Anarchist Cookbook. Then um, Ashley Podziad Sharp, formerly of the podcast that I got my start on, The Absolute State of Britain. He got eight years and five years on licence thereafter for, in his case, um, the initial thing that they, the, the police went after him for, which was for, uh, sharing a Mr. Bond track, which is ill-advised under the sort of you know police state we've got in Britain. He shared a Mr. Bond track on um, a Telegram channel he had for an active club that he'd started called White Stag. The police... Uh, didn't actually, he wasn't actually in the end convicted of that, but the police obviously went and got hold of his devices. And on one of his devices, they found some PDF that, which, which again, it was acknowledged uh, by the judge. Uh, there was, it was, it was evidence that he could never have accessed that PDF. But because of things that were on that PDF, he got eight years and five on license. Uh, latterly, I've already mentioned James Costello. We've seen a massive escalation in in Britain of you know basically turning people into political prisoners for stickers, words, unaccessed PDFs, and the like. Um, I will comment quickly as well on just going back to what Garrow was saying about people saying. Um, in you know Americans saying we need to do more of what they're doing in Ireland. I mean. Ireland has been one of the things that's given me some cause for hope in the past month or so. Um, what's interesting about that is it reminds me, I'm sad to say, of a kind of the phenomenon I think probably a lot of us went through before we were kind of at the point of acknowledging just how bad things were and how strong the grip this regime has. In certain ways, it's vulnerable. Narrative-wise, it's very vulnerable. But in terms of power and resources and institutional control, it's it's very, very strong and it'll be hard to break. But one thing, a phase of things, a lot of us probably go through of going, oh, yeah, base Poland, they won't stand up for this, they won't stand up for that. And what you're actually doing in a lot of those cases is you don't want to confront how bleak the situation is at home. Um, and you don't have to entertain the prospect of doing something about it because things are regulated such that it's very difficult to do anything. So seeing a mass change in the mood in Ireland is kind of not giving direct encouragement in terms of I see it having an effect in Britain, but just for the Irish themselves. I've taken some encouragement. I I, I joked on my stream last night that the Twitter algorithm has kind of been turning me Irish because since all of that, it's been referring (laughs) to a lot of Irish regime loyalists my way. And I've I've taken great, draw great glee from ratioing them and they do get utterly ratioed and some of the things they've resorted to like trying to kind of co-opt christianity in that very cynical way as kind mm-hmm. of uh, immortalized in that one particular meme no i don't share your beliefs and i think religion's ridiculous but hopefully i can make you do what i want that one they've, they've mm-hmm. turned to saying oh no room at the inn yeah no, yeah no room at the inn for fighting oh, age algerians yes. surprisingly a fucking enough yeah the same yeah. thing happened to me when once the uh especially in, in the aftermath of the the Algerian stabbing those kids in Dublin because I liked, responded, retweeted things that were um, posted, you know, from other accounts about that event, that crime. Uh, my Twitter algorithm just became full of <laughs> full of Irish people, both, you know, on the libtard side and some mm. pretty based nationalists, new accounts that I've, yeah. I, I've been pleased to discover and follow. And yeah. I even had a, a an Irish uh, follower of mine write to me in my DMs like, hey, why, why are you posting so much about Ireland? And it's like, how can I not? It's just everywhere. I log into Twitter. And everything I see is just about Ireland. Mm. Uh, so it's funny how the algorithm will, will bombard you with that. But at the same time, it made sense because it was, like uh, Gerard said, it was a, uh, an event that made global news. And it's and had a global effects. struggle as well. 
Exactly. I mean, we're mm. all being affected by this. Ireland is is just like on this fast track to where, you know, France has been for years, where Germany or England have been for years. Mm. Um, it's just astonishing the crime after crime after crime committed by people who have no business being in Ireland. And at the same time, as they're committing these crimes, they're also taking advantage of Irish generosity and these, you know, 30,000 NGOs working to bring them there. Um, some of the things you know, that you mentioned that, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to invite you into the, into the conversation there because some of the things that Tala mentioned about this turning of the screw in Britain with the censorship and now even, you know, prison sentences on the black pilled side of things that have happened in Ireland this year, along with the, the violence and, and the crimes, um, there is this new, uh, this, this surge to pass hate speech laws in Ireland that some have said are the most draconian in the West. Um, and there's also, going back to that burned police van that Tala mentioned, there were some who suggested that the riots in Dublin were a bit of a psyop, a bit of a false flag to give further justification for these hate speech laws that are only going to be applied to working class Irish people who are now called the far right. Uh, what are your thoughts on these, these this bad news that's, that's uh, happening in Ireland? Well, to begin with the conspiracy theory angle, <clears throat> I don't want to, you know, with COVID, like I, I'm one of the people uh, notably who, uh, when COVID began, I, I was like, this is a, this is kind of real. The first few weeks I was getting hand sanitizer and I was, I, I remember talking to people online doing streams and we were saying how this could um, jam up the globalism and sort of uh, create like individual countries again, give us the freedom to be our own countries. And we had all sorts of kind of wrong takes in how it went eventually. Um, some people once in a while will on my Twitter, when I say something, they don't like me or whatever, they'll be like, uh, I have footage of you being pro, uh, you know, going along with COVID in within the first few weeks, um, as probably everybody, most people did. But the few people who were, uh, called the conspiracy on that, you know, ended up being right. Uh, they might be wrong a lot of the rest of the time, but they were right on that. So I feel like anytime I dismiss a conspiracy theory from now on, someone can just pull that out on me. But with that said, the 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 idea that this was a conspiracy, the Dublin riots, I just, uh, you know, it could be. any. It's kind of like anything could be. Anything could be fake. Anything could be a controlled opposition. Uh, three of us could be th controlled opposition uh, we don't even realize it. We're mind, uh, mind controlled or whatever. You know, it's like you could never uh, take anything as being real if you just uh, entertain anything. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty normal person when it comes to uh, these kind of things. I, I like to see good, strong evidence, and then maybe I'll entertain it. But just as a general thing, without getting into the weeds of evidence of that specific night and this or that detail that someone picks up on, I just struggle with that because. For years, this has been escalating. There was a thing in Pierce Street in Dublin. A few, I can't even remember the timeline when it was. Was it a few months ago or whatever? Earlier this year, the awakened young fella, that thing with the the, the camp. The yeah, that was that one. Yeah. yeah so there was yeah, there was a Pierce Street, maybe about May or something. I don't know. 
and you know what now that you mentioned the camp you could sort of talk about that even itself like it was a, a conspiracy mm. because you have a bunch of like ngo people going into a really working class tough as nails kind of dublin neighborhood and setting up this migrant camp shanty thing down a lane in the middle of all these like flat blocks full of like you know tough dubs it's kind of like i suppose you could argue like how could that be anything else but an, an, an intentional provocation or whatever to create just the scenario that unfolded and yeah i could grant that and you could you could talk about pier street or sorry uh the dublin riots recently someone could say oh the stabbing didn't even happen there was no blood in the video they saw or all, the, all these kind of things but just again to zoom out totally from it any of these individual things you could look at and say well that is a bit funny how it went but then i would wonder like i know for years the sort of plantation and immigration situation has been escalating there have been a lot of protests there's been a lot of anger there have been um there have been mysterious fires at some of these centers which that's kind of a side point but i think like half of them could be what the newspapers allege which is disgruntled locals or whatever the other half could be insurance fraud it's all very murky but the point being there is some form of there is anger out there there's uh there's pressure there's social instability around this the policy that they're putting in is inherently provocative in itself. So you could all go all the way back to saying, actually, the mass immigration of hundreds of thousands or millions of people is itself part of the provocation to create this fake event to justify hate speech laws. You know, at a certain point, you kind of go, well, where does the like theory sort of begin and end? Um, anyway, you know, because it seems natural to me that there is this immigration. There is no. It's it, it's uh, the majority are against it. Communities are unhappy. It reaches boiling point. If you had told me a few months ago, for example, that you know uh, an Algerian or some sort of like totally random migrant who's just kind of like you know swimming around the country a little bit like uh, under the radar, they're sort of semi legal, that kind of thing with all the human trafficking scams and all of the dodgy ops that are going on within Ireland, it's, it's, a, it's a very corrupt like place, you know, um, uh, with all of this human trafficking or movement of people, all you need to do is walk around the city center. You, you can just smell it everywhere. You know, it's, it's, you can, you can tell intuitively when you're in the city center of Dublin, North inner city, <clears throat> that there is um, sex trafficking, drug trafficking, probably children, uh, something to do with, like uh, sexual exploitation um all of these phone shops that are totally empty you're like what what is that really doing and these guys hanging around it so but anyway my point being it, given all of that being the case if you had told me a few months ago that one of these random guys who might walk past you on the street would at some point go wild and stab someone kill some people could be children whatever i would have told you i'm shocked that that hasn't happened like a lot more to be honest you know just and that's just at a street level me sensing the street i would mm -hmm. have said that's that's like an inevitability you know and then if you had told me well okay if that's the case if that happened is there's an atmosphere in dublin among the native community these working class inner city communities and enough frustration given all of these buildings put in that it could end up leading to a mass reaction like a civil unrest I would say, yeah, uh, both of those two things totally follow. They're totally logical. They're totally in, in keeping with the situation as it is just in reality. So, again, the thing could be fake and all that, but it doesn't really need to be at all for me to be able to believe what's happening.
Well, it's very well said, and uh, you're you're completely correct. I mean, did the stabbing of uh, a man at Dublin Airport, an African, who apparently it was confirmed his motivations were that he is, uh, his welfare benefits had been sort of turned off, so he got angry about that, went to Dublin Airport and stabbed someone. Did that not happen? Did a Slovakian gypsy not kill Ashley Murphy? Did that not happen? Did a Kurdish refugee, quote-unquote refugee, not decapitate two men, two Irish men? Did that not happen? I mean, there's been loads of things that have happened in Ireland that, uh, like I said, it's it's like Ireland is just on on the fast track, um, you know, on the fast track to get where other European countries have been for a long time. And this is how you know it's not incompetence because there's plenty of examples of how mass immigration and the forced mixing together of all these various races and peoples um, doesn't work and it actually has disastrous consequences. And yet the political class of Ireland is pushing ahead with it anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right there that you don't need to say, oh, this was a psyop. This was a, this was a false flag. Um, I'm sure that there were people who took advantage of those riots. I saw pictures and videos. Uh, it looked like most of the people doing the, the looting of, you know, uh, shoe stores were Africans, actually. <laughs> so I'm sure there were people taking advantage of that situation to do criminal things. Black Irish, but fucking hell. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just think, well, we are in, in it's a very delicate situation, though, because now we've got this. Um, well, what do you guys think about this? Uh, this What was his name? Uh, Jeffrey something uh, or Godfrey something. He's going, he's a, British Jew, he's a cockeyed, literally cockeyed British Jew who's going to be in in charge of, I guess, uh, censoring what Irish people can say. Um, What what are your thoughts on that? I I haven't looked into the guy too much, but just as you've described him, I mean, I've seen that much on Twitter and stuff, the memeing, but um, yeah, a cockeyed British Jewish, uh, what is it, like a kind of like a commissar, I suppose? um, Yeah. Um, I mean, sounds about right. I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Not much I can do about it. I mean, just wait for uh, their uh, verdict. Yeah, well, I, I was going to ask. So what do you think is going to be the... Because the hate speech um, bill, the, the ideas that were being um, sort of put out there by the political class, over the course of the year, they were somewhat quashed. And that hate speech bill was put on the back burner because uh, people like Elon Musk were were tweeting about it and saying, this is ridiculous. This is insanity. We, we can't let this happen. We cannot let Irish freedom of speech be repressed so much. And because of that exposure at a global level, um, the political class had to put that hate speech law on the back burner. Now it looks like it's coming back with a vengeance. So what do you think is going to be the reaction or the opposition to it as we move into 2024? Um, well, there's a lot of pressure on them. Like the situation in Ireland, um, you know, um, is, is kind of funny because 
it's like I don't and I'm I'm not the type of person who will like play us up as uh, based Poland and this perfect training example it's all going great here like it's it's not you know um you know you could argue that like with all these people being arrested in Britain it's pretty bad um uh over there and people are suffering but like we you know it's apples and oranges you know depending on what country you go to Sweden France everybody likes to think they have it the worst or or whatever but like Ireland's bad in its own way you know the reaction is happening but it's also just being ignored so I just want to start by saying there's progress and like things like um now of course I don't condone any illegal acts whatsoever but some international observers see um some of these riots and some of these other local let's say pushbacks you could say and uh, international people from a distance will sort of think oh yeah there's a there's a sort of resistance happening in ireland and they will share the tweet um and it's big numbers on the tweet and everybody loves it look at ireland pushing back but then that tweet gets shared and life goes on and every day thousands of more people just come come in and you know the they're still in the traders and the globalist type of people are still in control and it's that was just one flash kind of flashpoint event and that just kind of comes and goes but in the mass sense you know there's no political opposition really um whereas in you know you could argue in britain i don't know i see this is a tired point but like there are sort of right-wing traditions in those countries we don't really have it here so it's anyway politically my point is that um it's not some sort of utopian resistance or whatever. It's going good in its own way, but you know, I don't want to put it out of context. Now, with that said, with that caveat made, there are a lot of good things. So there is the tradition of martyrdom and of sacrifice in Ireland that is very real. Like if you pick up a history book about Ireland and you read about Padraig Pierce and Michael Collins and all that, it sounds good and all, mm-hmm. and you might think, it's like a national, it's like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington in America. You know, it's just mm-hmm. kind of like they're, they're on sort of emblems and stuff like that. But it isn't just that. It really is woven into our, the way we are raised. We grow up with like the same way Western people grow up with the idea of Jesus Christ being a, a, a martyr himself, actually. Mm-hmm. It's kind of topical time to talk about this. I'm not quite, I suppose it's a birth, but, you know, um, you know, everyone in the West is kind of, it's in their DNA, the kind of the, what would Jesus do? A sort of a Christian ethos a little bit. Um, in Ireland, it really is the the idea of being oppressed by a tyrannical state and thrown in a prison cell and writing sort of um, sad poetry and, hmm. you know, ultimately maybe dying um, or just sitting in a cell and being released to like, renew your revolution afterwards like we know all about you know de valera collins pierce and all that it isn't just tokenism it is part of the everyday normal joe soaps even young mm-hmm. people I, I think even zoomers it's um it's it's glorified um and and uh, people people uh, you know you can't get away from that so with the hate speech laws the idea that they want to take someone who's a political activist a political revolutionary or whatever the word you want, want to use, even just a journalist um, for speaking the truth or their own sort of... Even just a concerned mother. Yeah, yeah. Any, but anybody who's pushing back sort of against this stuff, the idea that you would put them in jail for speech specifically, it's different if you could um, 
get them on some sort of embezzlement charge and put them in. That's a bit corrupt or whatever. Um, and people, you kind of would argue that, oh, well, it's for embezzlement or it's for this or that crime, but we all know it's a political thing. But if they're going to do the hate speech laws, that is just a straight up and down political crime. I mean, they call it hate speech law. That's another thing that gets me as well is that people, even opponents, will refer to it as the hate speech bill and the hate speech law. And that is, I mean, it memes. Well, people have, it, it has stuck in the global mind now, Ireland's hate speech law. But to me, I'm, I always kind of chafe a bit because it's like, you're, you kind of are using their terminology. It is just a censorship law. Like it isn't, I'm not, if I get, if I fall victim to that, I'm not going to be a victim of hate speech. I don't like that. I don't grant that at all. I, I It is, the, the neutral term would be a censorship law. But mm-hmm. so if you're going to have a censorship law for political crimes, I mean, that speech or that, that law is, is very specific because if it wasn't for your uh, speech or your views or whatever, then they would just charge you for another crime. It is, it is specific. To be thrown in jail for that is to effectively glorify that person. And then when you're in the position where you're glorifying a person as a martyr, sort of, like Patrick Pierce or Michael Collins or one of these people, um, and you have over 75% of the population, that's the statistic, I'm sure you've all heard it, 75% of people are against the migrant plantation. It's actually probably much more because if you factor out foreigners who are taking that, some of them might have a vested interest. And if you factor out the loaded language, it's basically everybody. That's what I always say about the 75% thing. That is an underball. It's really just everyone. It's probably like if you factor it, like, or someone who works for an NGO, you factor out those kind of polluting factors of the study and you just take just people in Ireland, real people. It's probably just, yeah, like I say, everyone, like 95% or something. So everyone's against it. You get martyred for it, effectively put in prison. And then on top of that uh, local communities are all against it and everyone is being affected then on top of that you add an x factor like conor mcgregor um who is like a probably one of the top five or ten celebrities in the world you know name recognition brand recognition wise who is uh he's he's like a he's a um he's a like a freewheeler you know he does what he wants a little bit he's kind of got that Kanye West sort of energy you know he's probably mm. hard to control mm. uh, so he's a big factor because he's a he's basically um like he, he's his own guy and he has his own ideas but in terms of the national movement his effect is just one big megaphone to the world mm-hmm. you know um and so if somebody falls victim to it and he takes on that cause or boosts it well then it goes straight to the world and then you have people like Keith Woods who has blown up lately and this mm. whole Elon Musk thing and stuff so and then to add to that, those are like big names who can boost it. But on top of that, then you have the diaspora, Irish diaspora, who are more hardcore in a way about the Irish thing than people here who are a bit complacent. You know, they they look back at this, they think of the Emerald Isle and all this. And to see this marauding criminality happening in Ireland, like gets them worse because they've actually built up a picture of an ideal mm. Ireland in their mind, whereas we're actually almost uh, um, desensitized. So you have that diaspora, which is massive and influential and powerful. They are watching it and they're on our side all the way, both in terms of, I mean, I'd love if they were supporting people financially here to do their activism, supporting people's work. Maybe they will, not quite yet. But more importantly, they're supporting uh, the moral support and the numbers. Um, I will stop talking in a sec, but just to finish the point, um, there's, there's a massive asymmetry in that the regime here, you have these NGOs and media people. There's probably a few 
like 20, 30, 40, 50,000 of them hardcore full-time ones, which is a big uh, nut to crack. They're there working every day full-time, whereas we're just having streams casually and doing all of, all of our own stuff for free, basically. So they have an opposition in Ireland, or sorry, they have an advantage in Ireland. They're paid, they're in power. But then on the other hand, like if you look, if there's some event happens in Ireland, like the riots or or the migrant plantation, the stabbings, Ashley Murphy, all of that, like you have hundreds of millions of people globally who are on our side who get activated about mm-hmm. it and they're all about it and they're they're laser focused on it online. Whereas let's say the international liberal community, like the blue hair, you know, whatever it is, they don't really care. They're busy with their own domestic affairs because that's what they're kind of paid to do. They're not actually activated. So th- what I'm saying is there's this kind of population. And, or, you know, free Palestine in front of the GPO. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Um, and they, and they're, it's just, it, it, there's a numerical asymmetry where it's like in Ireland, there's four, four or five million, debatably, whatever, uh, num- of us. Um, versus this kind of large, powerful regime. And they so even though they're smaller in number than we are, they have uh, asymmetrical amount of power over us in within the national boundaries because of their positions that they have. But if you look at it globally, they, they are totally uh, pushed down. So just to give an example, and, I, and I'll finish, is that let's say RT is the state broadcaster. They have huge power in Ireland. They can print the newspapers and set the tone and all that kind of stuff. But the megaphone of whether it's Conor McGregor and Mosque and the international right wing, which is just hundreds of millions of people and the diaspora, which is almost hundreds of millions um, who are mostly like on our side, then RTE starts to look like little baby, basically, you know? So, and, and what you have then is this increasingly sort of paranoid and demented domestic ruling class who are sort of in, uh, increasingly discredited on in just the general global narrative. Um, and so it's like it almost gets a bit North Korea-esque, where, yes, they have a lot of power here. They might control the boomer mind a little bit here. But in the grand scheme of things, they're just looking increasingly deranged. And we, of course, can uh, you know go over the heads of the domestic media and NGO class. And we actually have much more influence in the grand scheme of things and then that influence, what what it ends up doing is kind of almost like doing a U bend type of thing and coming back into Ireland, and so it's you know it's hard to describe it, but there is this dynamic I noticed in the last year where they even though they have all the king's horses and all the king's men, they, it's very hard for them to to control it uh, because we have got a lot of power in that sense, and um, because we are a small country. Um, and uh, yeah, it's that kind of internal and external asymmetry. It totally works to our advantage, um, and their power is only so big. At the end of the day, there are only a few tens of thousands of them, so they just don't have the bandwidth to compete with the global narrative on Ireland. Tala, you wanted to jump in uh, a couple of moments ago. Uh, yeah, a few thoughts generally. I mean, um, one thing I'll say on the um, the 
I, I, talk, I mean, censorship's a better term. I took to corner the speech suppression bill for the exact same reasons that Garrod, you know, sort of said. I, you know, we, I don't grant any, you know, any sort of credence whatsoever or recognition to the concept of so-called hate speech. Um, it's funny, actually, only a couple of days ago, I saw some sort of Irish leftist, you know, the Palestine flag and all the rest of it, expressing alarm about the implications of this, and particularly the fact that I think you can get a year in prison for refusing to give over the passwords to your electronic devices, and basically saying that the Irish left have slept on this, they've left the, left it to the right, and it's like, yeah, because you know fundamentally you have nothing to worry about, basically. Um, you you know, you understand at some level, whether you've noticed that you've noticed or not, you are pushing against an open door. Um, because people, for prof- people before profit exemplify this. I don't know whether that's just an Irish thing, but I saw a video where... Some idiot woman um, up in arms because somebody. There's a there's a some particular premises in Ringsend in Dublin has been like has been kind of selected for the housing of these fighting age foreign men. Somebody who I think is standing for some kind of electoral position in Finglas elsewhere in or around Dublin. I'm I'm not great on the geography, is leading the protest there. And she's up in arms. And this was a really good example of what we've seen. And we've also seen it in in relation to what Garrow was talking about just now, um, which is to say. I mean, the diaspora to a, to a degree, but then I think also just basically internet white nationalists the world over, going back to what I was saying before about this being a global struggle that these people can't comprehend because they have a civic conception of themselves as Irish. They don't think of themselves as white. And even if they, you know, even if they gave recognition to genuine Irish nationalists thinking of themselves, well, to be Irish is to be white, they wouldn't, they, it'd still take them a bit of grasping to get their, their head around the idea that, no, this is like a trans. This 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 transcends borders because we're all being subjected to the, the you know the same agenda. But um, what this is one of the most skin crawling things that we've seen. I mean, we've seen that we've seen this in in Britain as well in in different cases with with these protests. Um, we've even seen kind of examples of it in America when these people who've you know basically regime regime loyalists who've ordinarily got the most catastrophically dysfunctional uh, in group out group recognition fat- faculties become hyper parochial. Um, as a means of just trying to kind of like cry foul, like uh, you know the whole thing of old. No, no, no one in Ireland actually, no one in no one in Ireland is actually that angry about an Algerian going on an attempted murder spree. Um, anyone angry about this on on Twitter is like American or or or, or a Brit, you know. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, there's a lot of that, and it's utter bullshit. What it actually is is like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's le- legitimate anger and and uh, and dissent from. Uh, from white nationalists it's you know this is part of white nationalists cause it is so so is english nationalism uh, so is white nationalism is so is white nationalism in america and so on and so forth but this people before profit woman she was kicking off about a guy going to ringsend to lead a protest against basically plantation measures there because he's standing for election in Finglas. so i don't know what i don't know what the fuck he's doing in Finglas. it's like well but you, you know what you know, you know what he's doing sorry you don't know what he's doing in ringsend he's coming coming down from Finglas to ringsend you're up in arms about that. And what is it he's protesting against again? Oh, a load of Algerians and Afghans and Somalis and God mm-hmm. knows what else being shipped in. Um, th- there was another example of this. I mean, you kind of had it a little bit with Carl Rittenhouse a few years ago in America where suddenly... Right, um, he cross state lines. Like, oh, exactly, you cross state lines, yeah. So suddenly these yeah. people are like hyper-territorial. Um, <laughs> so in this country, there was a lad from Patriotic Alternative West Midlands was doxxed in March. And he went to some protests in a place not far from me called Cannock over the, this same thing, housing the fighting age foreign men. 
and you know the, the red flair that collaborated in his doctrine as they had in mine um were kind of first of all because his father was some sort of executive so probably like earned six figures a year but not seven you know they were like oh here we see somebody who's privileged and a part of the wealthy elite <laughs> no 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 the, 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 the wealthy elite isn't people on 150 grand a year with a five-bedroomed house okay the, the wealthy elite is if anybody needed saying like they're generally you generally don't know their names you know, you know the odd George Soros and whatever, mm-hmm. and then people like Jeremy Godfrey work for them. Speaking of him, I mean, really, he's got eyes mm-hmm. on different latitudes as well as going in different directions. Why stop at Ireland? He could keep an eye on <laughs> our world. But that was you know, name, they, Jeffrey <clears throat> Jeremy Godfrey, I think. Yeah, um, Jeremy, yeah, but they, you know, like they were up in arms about this lad going ten miles as the crow flies from where he's from to protest against people coming in from all over the world, like people coming from the four corners of the world. <laughs> but like, don't you dare step out of your your three meter squared and the fucking what three words up. You know what I mean? I've been so, I've been thinking about writing some something. It would it would not usually it would not take the the, the usual form of the things I write. I was just planning on writing a massive list of all of the uh, liberal, and I am going to use that term. Someone earlier um, on Twitter told me that I shouldn't use the word liberal, but I agree with uh, Ricardo Duchenne um, that this is liberal. This this is liberalism. This is extreme. Uh, taken to its uh, e- extreme logical conclusion, uh, liberalism. And even if, for example, people in Ireland specifically might not think of themselves as liberals, the beliefs and the the ideology to which they are thralls is liberalism. Um, I, I, I think some people might want to call them, you know, neo-communists. And yeah, sure, there's a bit of that. And Marxists and cultural Marxism and all that. Sure, there's a bit of that as well. But it's aside the point, what I wanted to do was just make a giant list of all of their hypocrisies. And I know it's a bit of a meme on our side now. You know, look at the hypocrisy. Um, and obviously, they don't care about the hypocrisy. But um, I just think that it would be it would be valuable to have a sort of uh, glossary almost of all of their hypocritical positions. And th- this is one of them. The idea that a native Englishman from, I don't know, Wessex cannot be concerned about something that's going on in Manchester or that uh, a man from Cork cannot be concerned about something that's going on in Dublin. And that's not Uh, part of the worldview. That's just something they reach for desperately when someone actually protests on the ground. That's all that is. But anyway, I think a lot of the hypocrisy is is from comes from a position of desperation now. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, Yeah. Cope. There's various different types of cope and crying foul, yeah. Exactly. And if they didn't have such backing from media, academia, and the political class, I've said many times that basically these people are kept on a sort of life support. And that if that life support were unplugged, they would they would fade away very quickly. Um, because reality is on our side. You see, you, yeah, now, you see this in action a little bit in real time on Twitter because you can say more on there now. And like, maybe, maybe I'm seeing the ones that get ratioed because uh, the algorithm feeds them to me and it perpetuates itself. But I would just say on this quickly: when you see people basically, you know, regime loyalists going to regime loyalists, when they do that, yeah, they 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 get brutally ratioed by people like us in the comments. Like, just there's, there's almost no replies in support of them, and ultimately. The point is, oh, one okay, thing other ones one may thing not get, seen, meme, get the same uh, treatment, on, but they would, because we've got all the arguments. Sorry. One thing that's become a bit of a meme, a bit of a phenomenon over on you know, Irish Twitter, is just how many of these Irish libtards 
tweet something and then have to turn off replies. Mm. Um, I said for recently, the past month, uh, comments closed would be a great name for yeah, it. Yeah, like it's like just a, it's a, all been comments podcast, closed. Yeah. Who can reply? Yeah. Both politicians mm. and you know and their toadies, the people with Palestine yeah. flags in their bio and that sort of thing. Um, they will say something ridiculous and then it's just replies turned off. <laughs> no one can respond, but they're getting quote tweeted, uh, quote tweeted um, like crazy. Now, as we're talking about that, it's a good, it's a good segue because this has been a good year for us in terms of the Overton window, the meta political narrative over in America, we've seen presidential candidates on the stage during presidential debates using the term great replacement and saying that it's not a conspiracy theory, it's government policy. Ironically said by someone who is kind of the literal, fa- the literal face of that, that policy, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, Shwami, I, I would say something like that. Uh, we also saw Tucker Carlson um, say a variation of the gradually I began to hate them line when he was speaking to, um, what's her name? Jessica Owens? No, Candace Owens. Candace, Candace Owens. Owens. About um, the, again, the, the hypocrisy, the double standards of these Jewish wealthy donors to universities that were not only fine with anti-whiteism, being rife in American universities, but they were financing it. They were supporting it. They, they weren't just sort of passively okay with it. They were actively um, fomenting it. But now that there are some students protesting against Israel, now, now they want to uh, not only suppress that, those protests, but also recruit the white people they were demonizing onto their side to help them. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the the success of our talking points getting ever more mainstream. And there's also, I, I suppose, a double edge to that sword because there's always the risk, especially with the American Republican right, the, the mainstream you know, GOP, that they just turn everything they touch into shit. And so if they start using our talking points like, you know, normalizing the use of the Great Replacement and criticizing it as real and policy, that in the end, that's actually going to sort of dilute the potency of that talking point. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I'll let you start, Tala. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally... <laughs> I generally have a more optimistic outlook on these things. Look, you, you always have to be wary when um, you always have to be wary when kind of the, the the mainstream sort of controlled right start to try and co-opt uh, talking points, uh, terminology, and so on. But fundamentally, you know, you, you've got to watch that they don't try to defang it. However. If they're having to do that, that is a sign of success in itself. Because I, you know, <laughs> I don't think they kind of. I mean, look, I, I don't really go in for the idea that Vivek Ramaswamy is mentioning the Great Replacement because there's kind of a conspiracy to quite the degree of saying, right, okay, well, we'd better have somebody throw this out there. 
I don't buy that. Um, but if that's happening because of just general exposure to it and it can't be contained, it, it's a good thing. You know, it's like when look at where, you know, you go back three and a half years, Matt Walsh at the Daily Wire, and he's one of the bigger sort of just about, well, no, very, very coach. He works for Ben Shapiro, but obviously there was the whole the real ructions in the Daily Wire staff over everything going on with Israel. I mean, we're not, we're, that's been talked about to death, so we're not going to talk about it. But Matt Walsh, going back over three and a half years, it's easy, it's, it kind of can be overlooked because of what happened with the summer of terror after George Floyd. But shortly before that, in like literally the week or two before that, the case of uh, Ahmad Arbery and the McMichaels in, I think, was it Georgia? I forget, had... Um, <clears throat> which had happened in in February, it started to get attention. I'm just looking, actually, I've got a boxing stream. Conor McGregor's just appeared alongside Cristiano Ronaldo at the big boxing show in Saudi tonight, but anyway, I digress. Um, what's happened there is um, Matt Walsh coming out peddling the line that Ahmad Arbery was just kind of going around this building site to look at the stud work, which was just risible. I mean, then also earlier this year, he kind of did the line of, oh, you know, transgenderism was started by a German. And I always wonder how on earth did they kind That's of right. think that, was, that would that be a good idea when they were obviously mm-hmm. just going to get ratio with people on Twitter saying, well, Magnus Hirschfeld was a Jew. Um, and then thereby basically give a few people who a few people at least looking into it a gateway into the Jewish question, which they would then, you know, go through. But generally speaking, if, they, if, if these things are being talked about, like Matt Walsh now takes, as one example, takes a stronger line on this, take, you know, on the whole idea of white people becoming a minority, white people being, you know, the regime being anti-white and so on and so forth. And if they're having to do that kind of thing, if you've got Stephen Crowder, as I think happened at some point earlier this year, having to say, are there atheists with Jewish names who are, you know, ethnically Jewish in grossly disproportionate influence, you know, positions of grossly disproportionate influence in Hollywood? Yes, there are. They're, yeah, okay, they're trying to give it a softer landing in cases like those because that's where these people's money comes from in a lot of cases. But the, the problem with not as many people get through the gate when it's gate kept as I would like, but in order to gatekeep effectively when there's a certain amount of pressure from those they just can't control, which is basically us on the right, they have to they have to kind of pull it ajar at times just to give the appearance that it's actually open. And a few people get through. Now, not as many as we tend to sort of project our own initiative onto more people who aren't quite are a little bit more docile and kind of never make it through. But more people still get through. It's still a net gain. And I generally lean toward these things being positive. Look, at the end of the day, without getting into it, because, again, it's been done to death, and this goes back well over a year now, you've only got to look at how much consternation there was over the, the just the mere suggestion that Twitter might become a little bit less censorious. The ADL were up in arms. They literally tried to destroy Twitter. They tried to defame Elon Musk. The EU, I think, were trying to take legal action against uh, against the company. I don't know if they still are. That was out earlier this week. We'll see how far that goes. But, or, or some sort of European uh, regulatory body or whatever. It does matter. This stuff absolutely does matter. And it's been influential in a lot of the discourse. I think the the things that the, the insurgent impact, and I've talked about this on streams only in the last sort of five, six weeks. The insurgent um discourse of the kind of the, the original alt-right going back to the mid-2010s, um the some of the fruits of that were actually seen in the wake of everything going on with with Israel and Hamas. That was definitely seen then. And it was also seen in the fact that supposedly the bloodiest day in Israel's history. And where, where's the narrative five weeks later? It's saying, well, look, these Jews who were behind all this kind of anti-white rhetoric and critical race theory, um, you know, they want our solidarity now. They ain't getting it. And that's their own people saying it. It's Candace Owens and, you know, Matt Walsh and whatever. So uh, I, I generally think it's a positive thing. It's just a, the question is how to sort of take it further. And, and, you know, how much long will it be allowed to be the case on somewhere like Twitter? That's the interesting thing. 
Definitely. I'm going to read some super chats as we're at the midway point of tonight's stream, and then I'm going to bring on another special guest. So over on Entropy, we have some very generous donations. Corvid sending in 100 US dollars says Merry Christmas and good Yule. Thank you very much. Mr. James also sending in 100 US dollars writes Merry Christmas. Wish it could be more. I think you've been very, very generous there, Mr. James. So we appreciate that. And then we also have a donation from TOTS or TOTS. It's, it's all capitalized. So, uh, not sure. He says, I've had a great deal of educations of educations since I found countercurrents this year. My first donation, good Yule, and he sends in 20 US dollars. So thank you very much. And it's true, countercurrents is sort of like an online university in a way. Um, now we have some super chats over on Odyssey. The Coronian sends in $5 and he asks, do you think Europeans will have it worse than Americans if they become a minority to Muslims slash North Africans compared to Americans being a minority to Latinos? Hispanics are a very good slave race used to being ruled by whites in Latin America. The way Muslims attack our women is very demonic. Uh, Briefly, I'll say, yes, I think Europeans will have it worse. And I think that's already true. That's, that's already been exemplified. Um, even just comparing like for like, Muslim to Muslim, I think the kind of Muslims who move to the United States or immigrate to the United States are of a, of a different species, uh, sort of. They are, I mean, you have to have a lot of money to make it to the United States and um, from, from the Muslim world. So I think they're of a higher class, higher income, um, whereas in Europe, we're just getting the dregs. We are, we are literally getting outcasts from the Arab uh, Muslim North African world, Afghan as well. Um, so I think that's already an observable Fact. Uh, do you lads have any thoughts on that question? No, I agree wholeheartedly. We've also got more oppressive laws and less space to flee into. Yeah, I, uh, I can't, I can't really comment on the United States. I don't know it well enough, but um, I kind of agree with some of the points there. Like with my ignorance, kind of stated at the outset, I suppose on America. But one of the caveats I would add, perhaps. Now, I know there's the idea of like the the really root and tootin sort of local community in Montana or something with their guns and all of that. But generally speaking, um, Americans are much more dislocated and disrooted. And uh, in the West, or sorry, in Europe, I mean, uh, the respective countries have their sort of peoplehood intact a bit more and they're less money focused, let's say. Than America is in general. Everybody knows America is kind of ruthless, and you got to make it by yourself. Mm -hmm. So, I do feel like you know, even let's say in Ireland, if um, we became the dreaded minority, like if we became twenty five percent of the population, we would be by the time we get to that, it would be a 
a very tightly knit 25% of Irish people, you know, like a, like a really locked down, like supporting each other in every way, very defensive, very cliquey, very, it would, it would get that way. I have no doubt about it. Oh, it doesn't get to that point numerically, but it would, Hmm. I know that for sure. It's already sort of like that in a lot of what we're seeing. And whereas you're not, I suspect getting that in America, perhaps ever. Okay. The rules of reality apply, writes in, might generative AI be used to destroy Madison Avenue and its cadre of white erasure content creators? Imagine white businesses generating their own ads for our own people and customer base. Let's build myidentity.ai white pills. Merry Christmas, my fellow Occidental men. Well, that's an interesting potential there. Uh, There's a lot of potential with AI. Some of it good, a lot of it bad, um, in my opinion. What do you guys think about that? The uh, the potential for supplanting Madison Avenue, which is uh, sort of the epicenter of advertising. Way over my head. I'll just get that in quickly. Um, <laughs> the, the problem is, I mean, again, yeah. we, the democratization of the internet has been a real problem for the regime. Um, but when it comes to things like AI, yeah, but again, the regime are going to have the best of it and the greatest reach with it, I would think. But again, I don't know a lot about it, so I'll hand over. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, it's a bit over my head as well, but, um, you know, I'm sure, I wonder if a lot of people online, like especially dissident people who have an anti-regime attitude in the West, because we're online so much, I wonder if other people have this thought. And I don't necessarily believe this, but it's one of those things where you're online enough and there's enough going on that it does, the conspiracy theory crosses your mind of like, is this all like a massive, like, you know, the way they had the internet in America in the 60s or whatever, things are way more advanced than than we know in any given time. You know, are we just sort of nodes in this big, massive algorithmic control mechanism and like your mind is just being sucked out of you and the political opposition is just completely being read by sort of algorithms that are on like almost like borderline supernatural levels and uh, we're partaking in this strange war where we can't possibly even understand it and the only thing you sort of have the only thing you kind of have left is like your ability to believe something is true a little bit like this Orwellian nightmare basically where it's just you and your phone and you're having this kind of spiritual war with your phone but it's doomed because it's all fed into this uh, algorithmic machine that is just being used to I don't know, defeat you politically and like it, it's, it's more sophisticated than we could ever understand. And it's completely unbeatable. And, um, you know, there are times when you've been scrolling for a bit too long and you start to think about these strange things, but uh, technologically speaking, I don't really understand the ins and outs of it. That's just a kind of hunch I have sometimes. Well, uh, just to give a, an answer to the person who sent in the donation. Um, I think that AI can be used by us for our purposes. And I've also written this year um, an essay encouraging our community to be more creative. And I think AI is just going to be a tool in the creative sense. 
it might supplant artists, it might endanger artists, but it can also be a tool, um, just as photography or um, you know painting. Those are those are tools in, in the artist's uh, craft, and so I think we've already seen this. We've already seen people using AI to make some pretty cool images and, and based memes. Um, and they, they, they can be inspiring and they can be shared and, and definitely have an effect. And we'll just see how that progresses. Last super chat here is from maybe next time. He asks, will Santa be bringing presents? I guess it depends where you live because in some countries, it's actually the three wise men that bring presents. And then for others, it's Father Christmas or Father Yule who brings the presents. So we'll see. Uh, it depends on where you live. Now, let's bring in our next guest for tonight. It's Prodi Midyord. Welcome. Hey there, guys. Good evening. So we've been talking about the year that was. You host the weekly roundup, so you definitely have an eye on what's been going on uh, over the year. Do you have any favorite events or any events that you think went underappreciated um i don't know no i i can't really think of any favorite event uh in the news cycle at least uh i, I think it's been well it's been an interesting year uh but of course uh the war in ukraine has been going on not a whole lot has happened in terms of the war itself of course there's been a lot of uh spectacular things around it uh like the prigozhin mutiny uh, attempt in russia and uh, other things and so on uh but otherwise the war has been pretty much at a stalemate this whole year so not much has been happening there of course israel <clears throat> the war in israel has been um a big dramatic thing um that has changed i think uh, the perception of uh, that region for a lot of people and uh, I, i think it's been a uh it's shown us uh that as as you know spectators really uh, that uh, people have changed their minds a lot compared to uh you know 10 years ago or 20 years ago uh and not a whole lot of people are sympathetic to what israel is doing uh in the war in gaza uh i can't really think of a favorite event or an uh, underappreciated event uh mm -hmm. So <laughs> well, one thing about the, the war in Ukraine that um, stood out to me this year was Russia once again following through on its threat to use so-called refugees or just plain migrants as a weapon, as a destabilizing weapon and push them into Europe via Finland. And then Finland responding to that threat uh, that actual threat that has become reality. Apparently Russia is doing that because Finland closed their border, which has all sorts of implications. Um, and you spoke about this on your uh, weekly roundup show. Um, but for those who might've missed that, I, I just think that is a spectacular development. It, it just has so many implications, both in the first place, you know, uh, an antagonistic force using the people that we are told are supposed to be enriching and the source of our strength as a destabilizing weapon 
a bioweapon, basically, literally. Uh, and then the response from a European country to say, you know what, in this, in this context, we don't have to abide by UN regulations or treaties or signed agreements. We're going to close our border in our self-interest. Um, would you like to speak a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, that did happen. I mean, that's not the first time that has happened. Other countries have done it as well. Turkey has done it before. Uh, and uh, Russia, uh, through Belarus, uh, did it uh, two years ago in the summer. Uh, they sent a lot of uh, migrants. And it's not Russian migrants. Uh, it's th These are migrants for, from the Middle East that are sort of... Uh, sent through Russia and Belarus and so on to the Baltic border, the border in Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Poland as well. And uh, now uh, this was happening in Finland, of course, with an ongoing war and Finland being a neighbor, uh, a, a neighbor country to Russia, but also a NATO country. Uh, it, it becomes a security issue because there's, there's now a, a hot war in Ukraine and a new cold war uh, intensifying between Russia and Europe and uh, America, the West. And so just sending people unchecked through the border uh, becomes impossible. So Finland decided to close the border um, and admitted that this is a form of uh, hybrid warfare. This is demographic warfare uh, because... Uh, well, migrants are also sort of a probe for uh, Russia to uh, seek out um, sort of uh, uh, open places in the armor or in security of uh, Western borders and so on. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an admission. And it also shows that uh, uh, Western countries knew all along that uh, migrants are a problem or are a threat to security. Um, and, uh, you know, they can admit it and it doesn't really become a theme in the mass media because everyone knows it's sort of an open secret that, uh, this is a security threat. Of course it is. I mean, the reason that we have, <laughs> the reason that we have, uh, Muslim terror attacks in European countries is because we take in countries, uh, we take in people from countries that are being attacked and bombed by the West and uh, parts of the world that are, are sort of being antagonized by Western countries or Western states and their sort of imperial wars and so on. And so in that case, it's, it's pretty obvious why we get terror attacks in, in European countries. Uh, and so that is a security risk. And, uh, you know, according to... Uh, Sadiq Khan, it's a security risk that we should just learn to live with. It's something that we should just accept. And uh, in this case, it shows the massive hypocrisy, both from Russia and from um, the West, because, of course, the West uh, is, is very is adamant about uh, keeping up mass immigration to uh, Western European countries and America, of course, um, but has sort of uh, looked the other way or turned a blind eye to nationalism and national identity and border control in, for example, the Baltic states and in Eastern Europe, because they know that uh, a strong national identity is, is, is good for security. And definitely when it is a border countries to Russia, 
And Russia does exactly the same. Uh, Russia pretends through sort of state propaganda outlets like uh, RT, Russia Today, they complain about uh, policies in the West uh, saying to Western Europeans that, look, 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 your leaders have abandoned you. They have opened the borders. They are replacing you and sort of playing that card. While in Eastern Europe, they do exactly the opposite. They say, oh, you're Nazi, you're racists. Uh, the whole war in Ukraine is framed in terms of denazification. So it just shows the, the nature of these two sort of imperial uh, powers that they are deeply hypocritical and both are more similar than either would admit. I mean, America and Russia have more in common than they'd like to acknowledge. Um, and so really, Europe now is being attacked from two sides. Uh, well, militarily, of course, or by, by military force fr from Russia, but through uh, damaging policies from the West and uh, from America and sort of the American ideology and uh, hegemony, really, in Western Europe. So it's, it's really it's highlighted, I think, and I hope for a lot of Europeans that uh, these superpowers uh, are not really our friends. Absolutely. Um, we were speaking about Ireland earlier, and I just think that, again, one of the implications of this development over there in on the Finnish border in Ireland, um, the political class and the, as uh, Gerard said, this minority of Irish people who support the political class and their second plantation of Ireland they will say that Ireland has to take in all these people because of agreements that they've signed with, you know, the UN or, or um, shared, sort of sharing the load. There's been this new EU migration pact that um, EU member states have signed where now they're basically just going to spread the shit thinly over all of the continent. Um, everyone will have to now take in their quote-unquote fair share of scammers and criminals on the run and things like that, uh, or be fined. And then also, um, Leo Varadkar said that it's wrong to draw any connection between criminality and migrants, or, you know, he used the word asylum seekers, but it's one and the same thing. Now the Pope this year cajoled Hungary into taking in migrants. He used the word migrants. He forgot, I suppose, to call them asylum seekers. Um, so again, the, the implications of Finland saying, no, we have the sovereignty to close our own border. And as you said, um, we're closing our border because these migrants are a danger. They, they pose a threat. They, they can be, a, as you put it, a probe from antagonistic forces to find chinks in our armor, or they will lead to destabilization of our society. They will cause problems crime, criminality, all sorts of other problems in our country. So, Mr. Murphy, you're there over in Ireland. I think this could be another arrow in your quiver, um, pointing this out. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, like the, the angle of international obligations is funny. And it just to kind of what Frody said as well, you know, the whole thing is such a mess. Like a few years ago in Lithuania, you had Lukashenko pushing over migrants and um, some of them were a lot of them were coming on direct flights from Baghdad to Minsk which are being solicited effectively by the Lukashenko regime 
And imagine these Baghdadis, these Iraqis, young men, unvetted, whatever, these young fighting age men getting on planes, landing in Minsk, probably being put on shuttle buses straight to the border and then being shepherded by these like, you know, tough, burly Belarusian soldiers across this border. And on the other side, you have uh, Lithuanian soldiers. It's such a Mickey Mouse thing. And it's such a preposterous scenario. Like when you think about the chain of travel that has to go on there to flood these like piss takers effectively into Lithuania. And then I think they tightened up the border and sort of got funny about it after a while. Like even the EU sort of, uh, the very like EU Frontex type people kind of started shutting that down. But for a while, those people were being brought into Lithuanian towns and villages, much like in Ireland and elsewhere, uh, put in these places. And uh, there were reports. This wasn't covered much in sort of nationalist, international press, like our circles, was um, the Lithuanian police were tear gassing people um, who were protesting against those centers being put in like military barracks and stuff like that. Um, it's very scant reporting on that. I think it just didn't cross the language barrier from Lithuania to the English speaking world, but uh, that's totally crazy. And, uh, you know, it, I just wanted to point out how, how sort of insane it is that like, there's a it's, a, it's a form of warfare from Lukashenko, let's say on this Russian side, putting these men into Lithuania, but then as a consequence, the Lithuanian regime are tear gassing their own people to force them to take them. So it's like the Lithuanian people in that situation are just the victims, like Frodi said, kind of from both sides in a way, because that's kind of like US imperial sort of doctrine of like this post-World War II thing of you have to take people in because of these obligations. And yet it's an active form of warfare that's almost declared from the other side. You know, it's, it's pretty difficult to be under that thumb. And speaking about the international obligations, you know, it is complete nonsense. I wrote an essay this year about China, uh, uh, immigration in China and stuff like that, and how China ranks as one of the lowest in the world. There's like Cuba and some other small countries. China is obviously the biggest country or up there is the biggest country now, one or two in the world. And uh, they have some of the lowest migration in the whole world. They are not only UN members, but they are UN Security Council members. Uh, so, like, I mean, it's not like it's an obscure example to pick China there, right? They're, they're perfect. UN security members and one of the biggest populations in the world, the, the globalized economy, effectively. Um, and yet they don't have to take millions of random men from the Middle East and Africa and place them in towns. The government just don't have to do that. They're not even castigated internationally. You don't really hear much about that. China being an undeclared ethnostate, 100%. Um, I wrote a big essay detailing all this stuff and they have collapsing demographics now and they've just, by all accounts, have just decided that they're not going to go down the immigration road. They're not doing it and they are going to have an ethno-nationalistic civilization um, going forward and uh, they are party to most of these treaties that Ireland and Sweden and everywhere else is. And they're just not doing it. Uh, Singapore, again, the definition of a globalized economy, um, has basically a no refugee policy. They're very um, pragmatic about these things. So uh, if, if you look at Belarus, Belarus is more of a rogue state, you could say, in this like international order. But you know, um, Frodi mentioned how Russia put out this propaganda about it being this kind of like European, uh, the, like the third Rome or whatever. Obviously, Russia is not. It's much talked about how they have their immigration stuff and all of that too. But Belarus genuinely is a very 
Belarusian or, or European place. Um, it's, I think that's probably a bit of an exception to that thing about Russia. Um, they do their own thing. Um, but yeah, on every level, whether it's being signed up to these treaties, whether it's having global trade as part of your fundamental economy, or whether it's, um, whether it's um, collapsing demographics, there are, there are big examples, literally the biggest example is China, um, just not doing that. And there's no consequence. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sobering thought for Westerners. Um, I think that, like, we, this doesn't need to be happening at all. All of those things are complete myths. Mm-hmm. And we are, I think, sort of in a bubble as well in the West. There's this idea that, like, the whole world is like this. And it's, there's, mm. I think there's something to be said for promoting the examples like China, not glorifying them or anything like that, because I know these mm-hmm. regimes have their own agendas. But just that's the reality in China. That's not just propaganda. It is reality. Um, that it also, it also the highlights that, the fact that this is only happening to us. It's this this exactly yeah. massive amount of taking in migrants or using immigration as a tool to boost the GDP or something. Um, you know, it's only happening in in Western countries, and it's only getting to the point of demographic replacement in Western countries. The Chinese aren't going to tolerate foreigners replacing them, reducing, you know, native uh, Chinamen, Chinamen to minorities in Chinese cities. Like they, they aren't accepting that. It's only happening to us. Um, it, it, these are, because you always get, you know, the gaslighting that it's not happening. Okay, it is, but it's a good thing. Or one thing I, I keep seeing now is that it's not replacement even though there's an entire, there's actually an EU-funded research project literally entitled Becoming a Minority, which tracks Europeans becoming a minority in their cities. Um, but one of the responses now that I'm seeing gaining traction from the sort of libtard side of things is that it's not replacement. You're not being reduced to a minority. It's just that the migrant populations the the non-native populations are increasing but your your numbers aren't being you know reduced you're not being replaced it's just that the foreigners are increasing um it's just such insidious argumentation but like uh, tala said i think it's because they're desperate oh yeah i mean i will just come in on this quickly because i do interact with them a bit um mushrooms as i call them because they're people that are kept in the dark and fed shit and they enjoy it or as i also call them human astroturf because they're people whose man whose consent for all of this was so easily manufactured that they they become like a kind of yeah that they they actually become the astroturf for it um they uh they'll they'll resort to all kinds of things that they haven't thought through because ultimately they're pathologically compliant. All they're actually doing is complying. They face no consequences for having fools made of them on social media and they can just selectively forget it. So they'll resort to anything. I mean, my favourite when it comes to Britain is because, you know, in Britain we've got um, a good few million Pakistanis, most of whom are from Mirpur, where the normal practice is to marry your first cousin. Um, as a consequence of that, Pakistanis uh, born in Britain are 10 times more likely than the rest of the population to have various congenital health defects. I mean, I, I knew a Sikh bloke once whose wife, also a Sikh, was a speech therapist. She worked in the part of Birmingham called Alan Rock, um, which is most populated by Pakistanis, and she worked there a lot because there was loads of kids with cleft palate. Um now, one thing that some of these people will resort to unwittingly, being oblivious, first of all, to the fact that this is what Pakistanis in Britain do, like 55% of them in Bradford, which has been known as 
you know, Bradistan has been like a, a joke term for, for Bradford for over 40 years, as long as I can remember. Um, they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, we needed, uh, you know, we, we're inbred on this island. We needed other people's DNA. Yeah, you know, the people that sort of pioneered the Industrial Revolution and had the biggest empire in history, what they desperately needed was people from Mirpur that married their first cousins. And they also needed sub-Saharan Africans, oh, you know, kind of not master the two-story building or a written language before foreigners turned up, of different foreigners of different races, I should clarify. Um, so the results of these things, you know, because they're just they're, they're fat and lazy and they're oblivious, so they're not aware of the fact that you actually know a thing or two, um, and we'll just sort of say, okay, like we'll, we'll point that out, and then maybe just send them a graph of consanguinity by country. Um, hmm. And one thing, one lesson I would say from that is. Um, that's an example of it in a more adversarial situation. But when you talk to kind of normal people who, who, who in a lot of cases kind of agree with us on a lot of things, inst- things instinctively, but they're not as robust or steadfast on it but in a lot of, because they don't have the temperament for it and they don't know as much, um, they will think you're like the Oracle. They'll be amazed at how much you know. But how, how, how much do you know about this stuff? I would recommend people, you know, hone your skills talking to people about this kind of thing because that's actually one of the best forms of activism you can you can participate in maybe don't do it in your workplace depending on what your workplace is like that's for you to judge but talk to people in your life about some of this stuff um and pick your moments as well when there's something the israel stuff is a really good example when there's a story in the news um pick your moment then and if you offer people a bit of insight and you don't just kind of browbeat them and you can kind of answer some of the questions and explain things that don't make sense to them the next time there's a relevant story they'll be like what do you think of what's going on in ukraine then or what do you think of this thing with the french election seen this in my own life time and again when the russia ukraine thing kicked off at the beginning of 2022 my barber was saying to me so what do you make of this with russia then and i just sat there and talked for 15 minutes he said yeah i agree i was waiting for you to come in all day to hear what you got to say about that so that's what will happen but yeah i mean it's a bit of a tangent but that's something to be borne in mind if you're in this thing you know way more than the vast majority of people and there's a lot you can explain for them so pick your moments to do it as and where global events give you the opportunity well christmas dinner is coming up soon so everyone will have plenty of opportunities (laughs) uh there is one uh super chat here that i wanted to read it was uh sent before we went live um but i want to make sure i read it because it is a very generous donation it's from Ogier or Ogier, and he has donated $220 and he says, Merry Yule. Thank you very much for that donation and Merry Yule to you as well. And let's bring in our next guest for the night. It's Dr. Greg Johnson himself. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. I uh, had a conflict today and I thought, well, I'll just get pox in and I can just trust you to do a great show. And so far, so good. I, uh, I've been listening for the last 20 minutes or so. And thank you for doing this. And thank you all, Tala and, and uh, Frody. And is, is it Geroid for being great guests? No worries. It's Geroid. Yeah. Uh, Geroid. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. No worries. No worries. Okay. Well, yeah. So anyway, it's, uh, it's definitely, we're getting close to Christmas and... I'm looking forward to the new year. I'm looking back on the current year and just running around trying to get the last last bit of shopping in and preparations for meals and get-togethers all uh, nailed down. But I, I know I, I know people want us to do these shows, uh, even even if we've got conflicts and we can just have to pull them together at the last minute. So thanks for uh, thanks for hosting. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy hosting them, and um, yeah. For- 
you know, on a, I guess personal would be the right word because I, uh, my personal life has been quite strange up and down this year, but, uh, personally I have enjoyed hosting these, uh, shows this year. And I think this year has been one of my most productive as far as my contributions to this, uh, Cosa Nostra of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been talking a bit about the year, um, what were some uh, guys, of I, I, I got to get going. So I just want to say uh, bye-bye to you guys. Uh, thank you for inviting me and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Um, I uh, wish you all the best and uh, have a good continued talk. Thanks, Frody. Right. Thank you. Take care, Thanks guys. for coming in. Glad you all and See all you, Whatever it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> bye-bye, guys. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, just uh, talking about the year in review, as it were, um, what were some events that really stood out for you? Well, uh, it was uh, it was quite an instructive year. There, there were a lot of opportunities to teach. I think the events in Palestine have been extremely educational and the worldwide Jewish reaction to that's been extremely educational. It's been a great opportunity for us to red pill people, uh, get our talking points circulating. And I very much appreciate that. I think the collapse of the NJP is a great opportunity to learn how to do better organizing in Mm -hmm. the United States. There's a series on the Daily Rake, which is a Canadian website. It's 11 parts now, and it's continuing to grow. My guy, I think his name is Tim Koish. He is a TRS person, NJP person, you know, a, a, a guy who was contributing to the cause for a long time, including holding his tongue about things that bothered him. And finally, he's openly critical now, and he's got all the receipts to to talk about these things. And he's not just engaging in drama and personal vendettas and stuff like that. It's really rich, granular, well-argued accounts of how organizations fail. And I, I just think it's extremely valuable because one of the things I would like to see happen in 2024 is I'd like to see a real ethno-nationalist organization, organized political movement pop up in the United States uh, and one that'll learn the uh, the lessons of this failed podcast nationalist venture. So I, I think that's uh, quite exciting, actually. I think some very bad actors are shaking out of the movement through this collapse, and it's opening up a an opportunity for better people to come in. I just wish in, in the United States we had our equivalent of Laura and Sam or our equivalent of Mark Collett, our, the people who could run an American version of Patriotic Alternative. I'd really like to see something like that pop up, and now there's definitely an opening for that. So that's that's been a big thing this year as well. The, the real sort of, uh, I don't know how to put it. The most, the most interesting and teachable events have all been since the beginning of October. <laughs> it's coming uh, fast near the end of the year. So those are two big things that I've been following intently. And I think that at the end, our movement is going to be better off for this. We're going to be better off for what's happened in Gaza. Oh, it's a terrible thing. 
it's a massive crime, but I think that we, we can benefit from it. We can learn from this. And I think the world is learning from this. And so it's not all in vain. And I think that, uh, again, it's, it's not a good thing when people fall out, when people behave like absolute trash on Jerry Springer, when you find organizations are peopled by corrupt and cynical, goofy people. But it's better to know sooner than later. And it's better to draw the, the proper conclusions so you know you don't make those mistakes. Again, I've known a lot of people in my life who have been paralyzed by regrets over bad things. And I've always said, look, the only thing you should do with mistakes that you made is learn from them. Learn from them and then put them out of your mind and get on with your life. And and I think that that's what, that's what a lot of people who are you know, heartbroken about being taken to the cleaners and taken for a ride by the uh, podcast, podcast nationalists should be doing. You know, take some time off at Christmas, spend some time with your families, but get back into the game next year. Don't uh, give up. One of the terrible things that happens, and this is um, a bit of wisdom that Sam Dixon has passed on to me. He said that it's a constant rookie thing in the movement uh, to have these schisms and splits. And you think, well, uh, I'll attack so-and-so and uh, put up a website running them down. And then I'll get 50% of their followers, or I'm going to walk out of the party and take 50% of the people with me. It doesn't work that way. It, it never goes 50% in one camp, 50% in another. What happens is 20 go, 20 go in one camp, 30 go in the other and 50 percent get just totally disgusted and burned out and they leave sometimes permanently. And I, I just don't want to see that happen. I, I'd like people not to, uh, not to get totally unplugged and, and leave and discuss, but just learn lessons and get on with life because there's so many opportunities coming up. 2024 is an election year. That means that we political junkies are going to have a lot of company. <laughs> Uh, people pay more attention in the United States in a U.S. presidential election year. And that means that we're going to have many more opportunities to inject our ideas into the mainstream. And a lot of the people in the mainstream are going to be talking about our ideas. We've already seen that from these Republican debates. So I'm very, very hopeful for 2024. I'm very excited. Yeah, why don't we get um, some thoughts on 2024 from our other guests, and then uh, we'll talk a bit about our Christmas traditions. We've got a good, uh, well, I'm uh, a bit sad that Frohley had to leave because I was looking forward to, to including him in uh, sort of a, a European and uh, a North American uh, conversation of Christmas traditions, but we still have a good mix here. So, um Tala, I'll throw it to you. What are your thoughts? What are your predictions, feelings, uh, misgivings, perhaps even going forward for uh, 2024? Well, obviously, Greg's mentioned it's, it's you know, there's going to be a presidential election at the end of the year in the US. I think we're going to be due for an, a, a general election in Britain as well, because our last one was in December 2019. Um I was about to say, I think it's much more of a kind of a, a the, the the discourse in Britain is is much more sterile, which is not to say that I think anybody who gets elected will really be allowed to affect any kind of change in America. Um, what's interesting, I've not been following it closely in the kind of, you know, you get into the, the vagaries of kind of um, 
state law and whatever else in in, in America. But this thing in Colorado uh, with basically saying that Trump can't run in twenty twenty four, I would kind of I've got to be honest. I'd I'd like to see him run again just for the laughs because what you know, however much he may have thrown. Uh, you know, white dissidents under the bus after Charlottesville, however much he may have done nothing that we wanted and and whatever else, and however much of a blowhard and a self-aggrandizing buffoon he may be. Um, it's, it's pertinent both for the purposes of kind of raising the temperature, polarization, and so on and so forth, and also just kind of for the spectacle of it, to remember what he represents to the the true believers um on the other side you know particularly the kind of the functionaries in media even in you know kind of government institutions and whatever else in America, particularly in the media and, and some commentary and that he's still he's still to them you know given their kind of tone deafness and the fact that they, they 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 totally missed the fact that he didn't really do anything that he promised to do for his own base in his in his in his one term in office he's an avatar of non-compliant white masculinity you know, rightly or wrongly, that's what he is. And that, you know, that that will, you know, these people are so hysterical, they're so hair on fire that if he were actually allowed to run, and I don't know whether he will be, how this what how this thing would play out, other people may be able to inform me better. Um that will play out again. They will they will absolutely be reliable in being riled up if he does the same thing again and basically speaks transgressively. I mean, even even absent that, as as, you, as we discussed briefly earlier, you know, <laughs> Vivek Ramaswamy, living proof of the Great Replacement, coming out and talking about it. If that was happening at that stage, it suggests, and I think this is an inevitability, just with the state of American society, the state of societies across the West, anyway, but the elections in America. Um, it's an inevitability that the, the, a lot of the rhetoric is going to be very polarizing, very divisive, potentially quite inflammatory to, you know, at different times to, to one side and the other side. Um, so that'll be interesting. I don't think it's going to play out in the same way in Britain. I think more of the argument will be over economics here. Um, the British public, I think, just utterly demoralized. Uh, people hate the Tories, quite rightly. Um, Labour's traditional base certainly it's kind of online base and it's base of kind of aspirational middle class people they hate it you know they hate Keir Starmer for being six-pointed Starmer as I call him because you know Jewish wife Jewish daughters very pro-Israel first thing he did when he replaced Jeremy Corbyn who was maneuvered out because he was non-compliant on the issue of Israel was apologized to the Jewish people for their hurt feelings so that they hate him for being too much of a Zionist that's that schism again of the whole thing of these people being bought into the brown person as innocent victim narrative and mistaken Jews as white and you know Western colonialists, um, so th- th- that will be interesting. But I don't expect it to kind of yield much of any use rhetorically or whatever in Britain. But America still matters a great deal more from the point of view of rhetoric and temperature and everything else. Of course, the, like, the thing we had in the 2016, I'm glossing over 2020, which was just a bad year, but the 2016 presidential election with Trump the first time around was you also had the EU referendum in this country, which, yeah, there are people in this country, there's certainly all over Twitter, who just had the brake lines in their brains cut in 2016 and have been rolling downhill ever since. Um they're still all over Twitter, despite having the Mastodon links in their bios. But they'll find something to get all riled up and have public nervous breakdowns about in 2024, as you know, as a, as a general election takes place over here. We're not going to get anything remotely as interesting to say what happened in the Netherlands with Heer Wilders and all that kind of thing. But um, yeah, and then obviously Ireland, just absent any elections or anything else, I don't even know what the situation is there. It's it's just interesting because the temperature is raised. There isn't really an established kind of kosher right there in the same way there is elsewhere. 
to absorb this. They've got their NGOs, but they've been maybe have been trying to do it too quickly. And I think Garrow talked about some stuff earlier on, which is very relevant, which is the fairly recent history of nationalist martyrs, you know, Pierce and Collins and people like that, and the, the you know the, the people in the nineteen the other people in the nineteen sixteen Easter uprising. And I've said before, I think that's a very inconvenient thing for them. It's why the the, the appropriation, the reappropriation of the term plantation by Irish nationalists, is such an inspired move, and must really must really rile the regime loyalists because of its historical significance to the Irish. So uh, interesting to see what happens in Ireland, as as is, you know, it's been interesting in the past month anyway. I, I don't think that issue is going to work go away clearly one other country to keep an eye on it's a bit of a bit of a demoralizing bit of a sort of low point i suppose of the year recent uh, development of the year was the election results in poland and how we're already seeing the consequences of those um i just saw i think it's the the polish equivalent of like the secretary of state just posted a picture of himself uh, stood next to brown and black people and uh, NGO workers and, you know, pledging to bring in more foreigners. Uh, you know, I think uh, the, the based Poland meme is going to be mm, killed this year. And um, then we also saw some other disconcerting things. Uh, I think it was like the minister of education or something like that, uh, a woman. Uh, and she has like some professional photograph of herself wearing a shirt, which depicts a child holding an umbrella to protect herself from falling crosses. Uh, very um, provocative imagery there for a country that is as Catholic as Poland. Um, so it's something, you know, we've, we've had ups, uh, sort of, you know, tepid ups with regards to the political scene you know the the election of builders in the netherlands yes he's a zionist yes he's married to a hungarian jew but i take his his win and his resurgence as maybe not a good sign politically because i i, I don't know how much of an effect and a positive effect he will have but i do take it as a good sign of where, where the dutch people are and zooming out more where europeans in general are um but then you get this other uh, election result in Poland, which seems to be going the opposite direction. And this is something that has annoyed me and trolled me about democracy for a long time, which is just how how schizophrenic it is. It's not stable and it's it's not sustainable. You can't go from, for example, in America, you know, eight years of Barack Obama, then four years of Trump, then four years of Biden, which is basically just Barack Obama 2.0. Uh, you know, the, the cute hearts think that even he's the one pulling the strings behind the scenes. And then it looks like we're going to swing back to Donald Trump again for another four years. Um, you know, in, in the European scene, we get the election of all these nationalist parties in Italy. Uh, in, in, and in Spain, you have the rise of Vox. And then you've got Builders winning in the Netherlands. And then over in Ireland, it's, you know, open borders, libtar progressivism taken to the max. Uh, and now we have this... Uh, development in Poland that seems to be quite negative. So it, it is very messy. Um, Garo, do you wanted to jump in? Well, yeah, just um, on the democracy point, you know, I mean, Ireland speaks to the ridiculousness of it. Uh, I mean, I don't mean democracy in the sense of, um, you know, a populist, a demos having a say in on power. I mean, just in the way it's practiced, the various forms of uh, parliamentary democracies and that. Like, 
in Ireland, we have massive unrest. We have an overwhelming, a massive majority of the population are against this policy. And it's not an obscure policy by the regime's definition or ours, because that's all we talk about. And actually, if you turn on the TV or if you walk into a news age or a shop or whatever in Ireland, it's uh, the it's all over the newspapers. Far right, this far right, that immigration, this immigration, that it is the talk of the country. The majority are against it. Massive unrest. And yet in our dull air and in our parliament, uh, there is not one uh, anti-immigration voice, really. Um, so effectively, you know, the the process is a piss take. The way people are elected, it's just these parties are kind of entrenched. It doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, hopefully we can get people elected. I suppose it's a game worth playing if it's a game that's in front of us. But um, yeah, it is kind of ridiculous. Um, you know, the Polish thing, uh, based Poland, I mean, I think they're going to get a rude awakening. They are the next Ireland, mm-hmm. by the way, mm-hmm. with the international business, um, the American mm. military sort of domination of that place. They're, they're in for a rude awakening. You know, I mean, I know they like their crucifix and their sort of Christian sort of hardcore nationalism and stuff, but uh, I don't know. I mean, we had that guy with the fire extinguisher, I suppose. That was an interesting detail. But uh, yeah, maybe you can actually yeah. talk about that. I'm going to take that as uh, as my cue to go. I have to go, but uh, I just want to wish Merry Christmas to everybody. And uh, thank you like for having one. me on Pots. Thank you for coming on. We spoke at the beginning of the year and it was great to talk again at the end of it. So Merry Christmas and a happy 2024 to you. Okay. Bye, lads. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. And there is a super chat here I wanted to read. It's just come in from I'll Take My Stand, who uh, has a very good Twitter account. So if you're on Twitter and you're not following I'll Take My Stand, just type that in. You should be able to find him and give him a follow. He has sent in 138 US dollars. And he says, Merry Christmas wow. and Happy New Year to all. So again, very generous donations tonight. We appreciate them so, so much. Um, without them, none of this can happen. Uh, it's that simple. Without the donations, none of this can happen. And I would even say they're not so much donations. This is a, you know, a, a commerce exchange. Um, in, in return, you are getting this almost sort of institution of knowledge and uh, wisdom and these conversations that bring to the fore new voices. Um, I, I sometimes, you know, I, I balk at the, the, the framing of it as donations. I actually think, no, you're, you're paying for something that you're getting in return. You're not getting nothing in return. Like a donation, you usually just do it for nothing. You know, when you drop a coin in a Salvation Army bucket, it's because it's a charity. I don't think this is charity. I think you guys get something really, really good in return whenever you help out our guys, whether it's, uh, you know, Imperium Press or whether it's buying some merch from uh, uh, one of our guys or whether it's making a contribution to Countercurrents. I think you're definitely getting something in return. So we've got 15 minutes left. Now there were three. Let's talk a bit about Christmas traditions, and then we'll wrap up. Paula, what are your uh, your Christmas traditions that you uh, would like to share with us? <laughs> they're, they're distinctly untraditional. Um, 
I'm not a gamer by any stretch of the imagination. There is, however, one exception to that, which is really just an outlet for my autism. Well, the kind of the, the the sort of dual characteristics of autism and growing up like in football. Um, the video game Football Manager comes out in sort of late October, early November every year. And at the rate I play it, it takes me about three to five weeks to get through a season. It takes maybe a week before that of trying to figure out, okay, who do I want to buy? How do I want to organize the team and whatever? Um, so traditionally, I spend a lot of time in the run-up to Christmas and during Christmas actually playing Football Manager, as tragic as that sounds. But I quite enjoy it, you know, just sort of enjoy a bit of the solitude of it away from the, the time I spend with my family at Christmas. Um, but I've not, I've, I've kind of not, played football manager for about probably for about three weeks because I was so successful in my first two seasons I've won everything and so you know the hunger has kind of gone um so that's one um other ones another tradition of mine is and this is this is a very uh British thing because I don't I try as I'm aware very Alan Partridge actually I don't know if any I don't know if you have these elsewhere but in Britain we have these things called a Terry's chocolate orange and it's basically something around about the size of an orange uh, in segments, but they're segments of chocolate, and it's flavoured with orange oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, very nice. And then what you do to kind of uh, to sort of open it so that you're not just biting into the whole thing is it says on there sort of tap to unwrap. It's kind of wrapped in foil. And what you're meant to do is just give it a little tap, maybe tap it on a hard flat surface. One year going back about five years, I took a video for some reason um, of me trying to open this thing, and it was sat on a bed, so like the the, the, the it was on a mattress, so it was going to give. So I've tried to punch the thing, and it's kind of rolled away and not broke. So I've got annoyed and then whacked it and it's gone again. And then it became, and I've not, not done it this year either. This is, I'm failing in my own stupid Christmas traditions because um, I've not done that with the Terry's chocolate orange this year, but I'll always kind of take a video where I deliberately fail and then I just smash the thing and just like, you know, like break my knuckle on it. But um, there's two for you. I mean, another thing, traditionally I, I have like white toast with butter on Christmas morning. Um, don't know why. Ooh. That's just been a thing. <laughs> yeah, that's been a thing for a while. I'd quite often... And I'm not done that this this year either. Quite often do a bit of karaoke with the old man, uh, but I'm not done that. That's so I'm, I'm not I'm not very rooted. I mean, particularly I'm not the best one to ask about Christmas food and drink because I don't like mulled wine. I don't like alcohol. Full stop. So no, no. Sh- I did tell mm-hmm. a good story about my great grandmother, my English great grandmother, getting me drunk on sherry on Christmas Eve when I was six in 1991. <laughs> yesterday on my my own stream, but I don't do the sherry or the eggnog or the brandy or the mulled wine. Don't like mince pies. Don't like Christmas cake. So I ain't great with all of that stuff. I don't even like a lot of the traditional english christmas dinner i like i love roast potatoes but you know mm. you have them all year round but yes yeah, so I'm, I'm a bit of a letdown <laughs> on a lot of this stuff to be honest that's all right greg how about you well i have a pretty normal american christmas i i do okay for years i spent christmas with family or the or friends and so i never really had a christmas tree for quite a long time and I think it was about 12 years ago, 11 years ago, that I, I actually went out and got my first Christmas tree because it was my first Christmas at home in a very long time, in my own home. And uh, I actually wrote a piece about it at Countercurrents called Plastic Christmas because uh, I was living in the Bay Area at the time and I had to decorate a Christmas tree in the dregs of consumer postmodernity in the most uh, diverse part of the country. And it was kind of a nightmare experience. And 
it was it did not correspond to my idea of what Christmas was like because all the ornaments were plastic, uh, and the the and cheap, and you know the people I was uh, seeing out at the various stores were I felt like I was in I felt like I was in the future. I felt like I was in the future after America had you know been completely replaced. So it was a kind of weird uh, experience. But I made this vow to myself that I would with each passing year, make my Christmas less plastic. And so what that meant is retiring plastic Christmas ornaments. And uh, there are a couple things that uh, allow that to happen. First of all, I inherited some Christmas ornaments. And then I was given some Christmas ornaments by various people. And, and people would give me Christmas ornaments as gifts if they were coming to for Christmas. And so I started replacing the plastic stuff with stuff made out of glass or made out of wood or made out of, uh, well, it's still kind of plastic, these sort of resin things that you get, but they're, they're, they're the better kind of plastic, you know, they're the, they're the museum gift shop kind of plastic things, not the, not the, uh, Chinese bazaar kind of plastic things, the Walmart kind of plastic things or the target kind of plastic things. And so this year I finally completed the deplasticization of Christmas. I, I threw away all the, um, I didn't throw them away. I gave away all the plastic ornaments and uh, I, I no longer have a plastic Christmas. And the tree, of course, is made of wood. Uh, uh, that was the only thing that was made of wood when I started out. But anyway, I, uh, so I, I have deplasticized my Christmas and I have a lot of things that I've collected over the years. Some of these things were, were Christmas ornaments that I gave to people that I would go and spend Christmas with. And then two of those people ended up dying and a lot of those ornaments came back to me. And so that's another thing about decorating the tree. I decorate it with things and I, they remind me of people. Uh, they remind me of people uh, that have died. Uh, they remind me of friends and family. And it's, it's kind of a touching thing. I have oddball things on the tree. I have a tiny little Japanese fan on the tree that uh, was given to me by Jared Taylor. And on the reverse of it is a handwritten thank you note because I hosted him for dinner one time and made dinner for him when he visited San Francisco. Uh, this was maybe 12 years ago. So things like that. That's a, that's a Christmas tradition for me. Another thing I do around Christmas time, and I've been doing this every year for a very long time, is I rewatch the whole extended version, Lord of the Rings trilogy for some reason. I don't know First why that reason. is. Because it came out. It came out in cinemas during the Christmas times. That's why it's a Christmas you know, Okay, you, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's, that's what I associate it with. Uh, it was, I went it was to the, the cinema to see them for three years. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, yeah, yeah, me too. And so yeah. I uh, just continue to, to watch those. And, uh, and My most controversial take is that I prefer the cinematic version to the extended version. <laughs> You know, at, at first I found the extended versions felt padded, but then uh, the second time I watched them, and each subsequent time, it just feels organic, and I, I've forgotten, I've forgotten the uh, the cinematic versions. But that that's uh, that's interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of a few other things that I do that are that are my personal Christmas traditions. Um, I like to see the Nutcracker around Christmas time. I, I've not actually done that until this year. Uh, but it's always been like in the background. I had nutcrackers on my Christmas tree as ornaments, things like that. And uh, I finally went and saw it uh, this year. 
So that's that's kind of nice. Another Christmas tradition, the music thing, is uh, seeing Puccini's La Boheme, which is partly set around Christmas time, and sometimes uh, it's it's uh, performed around Christmas. So um, th- those are a couple other things. I'm trying to think of other things. Well, Christmas music. I love Christmas music. I think a lot of Christmas music is absolutely fantastic, and I I mean the the hymns and carols are are beautiful. Uh, the Christmas folk music from various European countries is very beautiful. And then a lot of the popular songs written around Christmas time in the 20th century. Uh, I don't mean Jingle Bell Rock and that kind of swill. Uh, a lot of it's very beautiful music. Uh, one of my favorite songs is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It's a very melancholy mm-hmm. song with a beautiful melody. So I add to my Christmas music collection every year. I, I'll, I'll go buy a new Christmas CD. This year the big was a big disappointment. I, I bought a Placido Domingo Christmas CD and I, I took it off after the first track because he was just mauling this music. Sometimes these uh, opera singers can, can just nail this stuff beautifully, but sometimes they just maul it. Jonas Kaufman, who is, I think, the greatest active tenor in the classical music world today put out a christmas album a few years ago it's fantastic you know he does the operatic stuff and the the traditional stuff very very well but he can sing these popular songs without you know brutalizing them so you know i I like to listen to a lot of christmas music uh around christmas time in terms of meals um I've gotten into a habit of, of basically going out to a hotel that has a Christmas dinner <laughs> because I, uh, you know, I cook, cook for myself all the time. And, uh, I, I just, uh, I want to give myself the day off. So I just go out to, with a couple of friends and we eat at a hotel. So those are a few of my current Christmas, uh, traditions, I guess. Um, there's a Christmas tradition, uh, well, it's a post-Christmas tradition of uh, seeing uh, Johann Strauss Jr.'s Deflator Mouse around the uh, uh, around the New Year. I have to say that you know I g- tried to give the fla- Deflator Mouse a chance, and I wasn't crazy about it. I had this friend who used to work for the Metropolitan Opera. She's dead now. Uh, she called it Die Flater Mouse because she didn't like it. Die Flater Mouse, die. But um, you know, so there's some, there's some things that I've given tries to, the things that I haven't quite worked out, but some things have really stuck, and so some of those are my idiosyncratic Christmas traditions. Oh, really what about like yourself? The- the de- the deplastification of Christmas and the the memories that come from decorating the tree that was very very good. Yeah, um, I really. And I, of Christmas it's, it's an important part of the. It's an important part of the thing. Charlie Craft, my my dear friend, made a number of little badges, uh, little porcelain badges uh, that he sold just you know just for a little extra money. And I have three of those, and I pinned those to a a piece of red ribbon and i've always kept it and I've, I've tied it to the christmas tree every year for a number of years now uh and it's just a way i remember charlie so yeah uh some of these things aren't actually purpose made for christmas uh, I, I have a moomin troll bookmark hanging from my christmas tree that i bought in helsinki 
for instance. So anyway, so but some of these things we had, we had some uh, when I was a kid. We had some goofy ornaments that were good for a laugh, or again, just for a memory. There was a particular memory tied to that thing, and it became a Christmas ornament. Um, mm-hmm. And speaking about Christmas songs, I just learned, just discovered the other day that Carol of the Bells. Um, which features in Home Alone. It's that minor yeah. key, quite disturbing song. I'll just yeah. hum it a bit for those who might not know. It's the one that goes dun 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 dun. dun. I just learned the other day that that's actually a Ukrainian song that has more to do with New Year, not Christmas. And it was written in the early 1900s. I think it was like 19, 1919 or something like like that. Um, and if you type in in YouTube. Carol of the Bells, Ukrainian version, you will get some beautiful live performances of choirs singing in churches um, in the Ukrainian language, the original version. Uh, so I, I recommend everyone looking at that. Um, okay, we are at the two-hour mark. Yeah. Uh, I suggest that everyone go tune in to Millennial. Uh, David yes. Zuddy from the Homeland Institute is going to be on just now. Um, any final thoughts, gentlemen? Merry Christmas. Be of good cheer. Uh, it's been a great year for our cause. Uh, it's been a terrible year for the system, a great year for our cause. And 2024 is going to be a time when we continue to make progress. I'm completely convinced of that. Yeah, I hope, uh, hope Greg's right. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy it. And uh, to my co-ethnics by blood um, in three languages, I think if I mastered them right, glad you all, you all flowered and uh, Frau Weihnachten. It's the best I can do, I'm afraid. <laughs> Very good. And a special thank you to our moderator, Reed Johnson, uh, who's been working like a dog, moderating so many streams of late. Um, yeah. Always doing a great job. Um, Millennial is one of my, my newer Christmas traditions, I have to admit. So, yeah. So, definitely. Millennial is fantastic. It's, it's something unique. It's something, I think it's one of the great meta political creations. Uh, on our side of things no one else has done something like it um so yeah everyone go go tune in uh to millennial woes he's streaming on twitter this year as well which is funny considering how how much of a love-hate relationship he's had with that platform and oh yeah Odyssey don't worry i'm not going to go on about it again <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. exactly so um merry christmas good yule everyone um and here's to a great 2024 thank you bye thank you bye thanks and good night